During Advent 2016, my placement church of Stranton All Saints in Hartlepool did a sermon series on a variety of different themes, and mine was on globalisation. To complicate things, I had to preach the same sermon in three slightly different contexts. The first was at Burbank Community Church on November 27th. I had been there two weeks prior, leading the Remembrance Day service, and as such I tied in some of the themes of the World Wars. The others were at Stranton Church on the 4th of December, one at an 8.30 traditional communion service with a shorter amount of time for the sermon, and then the second at a 10.30 service with some more time. This script which I'm about to re-record for you is the end product of all three, so it's a slightly expanded and amalgamated script. However, I believe it works as a cohesive whole, and I hope that you'll find it interesting. The Bible passages were taken from Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 2 to 7, chapter 2, verses 9 to 14, and John 12, verses 44 to 50. You are listening to a sermon from the Pilgrim Path with your preacher Samuel S. Thorpe. I was standing on the wall by the ocean last week. I'd had some time to kill between the morning service and messy church, and so I thought I would brave the wind and the rain and head down and see the sea. The wind heaved in mighty gusts as the waves crashed upon the shore, and I was struck by the sheer size of it all. When was the last time you went to the sea? Perhaps you're used to it, but I grew up miles away from the ocean in the depths of rural Devon and then rural Norfolk before spending time in London. Trees and fields and hills are one thing, Buses and endless pavements and buildings are another. But the ocean... The ocean is a completely different thing. As I stood there, I was struck by the sheer size of it. It spread from the headland to the left, across to the right, over and beyond the horizon. There in the distance was a massive ship sitting out at water, silhouetted against the skyline and it got me thinking about this sermon on globalisation. Standing there, buffeted by the wind, I had a renewed appreciation of just how big this world is. The view of the sea, and, turning around, the view of Hartlepool, seemed enormous. And yet, in context, this is just one small corner of the northeast, which is a corner of England, part of the United Kingdom, part of Europe, part of the Northern Hemisphere, part of the whole world. I think that the world has always been a place of the unknown. Walk along the coast and there's always another hill to walk over, another cove to discover. As you know, I've just started at Cranmer Hall in Durham. In the last couple of months I've been walking and cycling here, there and everywhere around Durham discovering different ways of getting from one place to another, and slowly mapping the place out in my mind, getting to know the area. 
we have a tendency to want to explore the world around us. Think about the Lion King movie, when Mufasa tells Simba that everything the light touches is their kingdom. And Simba wants to know, what's beyond the light? What's over there? The world has always been this way. We look at the story of Abraham and his family as they set off to look for the promised land that God has told him about. We look at ancient history and the spread of the Egyptians, or later the rise of the ancient Greeks before being overtaken by the Roman Empire. Even before then, in our reading from Habakkuk today, we hear of the Babylonian Empire, which seemed unstoppable in military power as they filled the lands. There was Alexander the Great, whose empire was over two million square miles big, some three hundred years before Jesus. The Roman Empire was 1.9 million square miles. Genghis Khan and the Mongol Empire, a thousand years later, was 9.3 million square miles. That's two and a half times the size of the United States of America. Then we come to the largest empire known to history. Just over 400 years of exploration, war and politics grew the British Empire to 13.7 million square miles. To put such a large number into perspective, the UK is 244,000 square miles, England is 50,000 square miles, the North East is 3.3 thousand square miles big, and Hartlepool takes up 36 square miles. That means that the British Empire was the same size as 38 lots of the United Kingdom, or of 258,333 Hartlepools. Or to look at it another way, the British Empire held Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Tonga, Fiji, Western Samoa, India, Burma, Papua New Guinea, Malaya, Sarawak, Brunei, Oman, Iraq, Egypt, Libya, Sudan, Kenya, Uganda, North and South Rhodesia, Tanganyika, Zanzibar, Mauritius, the Maldives, South Africa, Swaziland, Nigeria, the Gold Coast, and Sierra Leone, and parts of what's now the United States, and China. That's a lot of places. So why... Oh, why am I rambling on about these historical empires? Because, to an extent, life has always been this way. Civilizations have always grown and tried to expand, to explore and control as much of the known world as possible. In the process of expanding, these empires had to find ways to stay in communication, to stay connected. In ancient Greece, they relied on messengers to run between battalions and cities. The Romans built the long, straight roads across Europe and the UK to make trade easier. When we read Acts, we see that there are shipping routes across the Mediterranean Sea. Another thing which happens as as empires expand is that they encounter and meet other countries and new cultures. Ancient Roman culture was basically a giant mixture of the everywhere that they had invaded. If they encountered a new religion with different gods, then they would take over the temple and add the new god to the rest of their pantheon. However, today we don't really have empires in the same way. From the Babylonians to Alexander the Great through to Genghis Khan and the British, 
empires have found their strength and their power from their military prowess. The people with the best weapons and the best strategies won the war, and were in charge, essentially until either the leader died, a stronger, better army came along, or their economy began to struggle. This continued really until the world wars. 2016 is 102 years since the start of the First World War, 100 years since the deadly Battle of the Somme, and 77 years since the start of World War II. The other week was Remembrance Sunday, where we remembered the soldiers who died in those wars, and indeed all of the wars and conflicts since. Woodrow Wilson, the President of the United States during the First World War, famously said that it would be the war to end all wars. These wars were wars which happened on a scale such as the world had never seen before. There were more countries involved, more soldiers and more battlegrounds than had ever happened before. Warfare had developed from the swords and chariots and spears, and the bows and arrows, to guns and bombs, planes and tanks, gas and trenches. Perhaps most significantly, there was the development of the atomic bomb, which was deployed in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, killing hundreds of thousands of people within weeks. The arms race and empire building was now too deadly to be sustainable. That's not to say that there wouldn't be other wars and conflicts, because we only have to turn on the news to see what's going on in the world. But there's no one single country or superpower which has conquered or controls the whole world. A world of war turned into a world of diplomacy and politics. However, the world wars did reveal one positive thing. Just how interconnected the modern world is. Supplies and people had to be transported great distances by the sea or by plane. Messages could be telephoned or radioed to exchange information in minutes rather than hours or even days. There was even a sense of unity which transcended cultural and geographical boundaries. Australians fought alongside Kenyans, Americans alongside Irish, and English alongside the French and all manner of combinations of other nationalities working together. Throughout history, humanity has wanted to explore and map out the whole world. This desire turned into what we now call globalization. The modern world of diplomacy, of communication, conversation and interaction, is truly a global one, especially with the rise of the internet. It has never been easier to trade with the rest of the world, and this has impacted our lives in simple and often unexpected or unrealized ways. For instance, imagine getting food in Tesco's. If you buy the raspberries, they may come from the UK, or they might come from Morocco, or Kenya, or Mexico. Your bananas have often been shipped in from Costa Rica, Ghana, or Colombia. Beef may well come from British cows, but lamb is often from New Zealand. Or think about our clothes. My shoes were apparently made in India, and so were my jeans and my shirt, while my jacket was made in Vietnam, and actually so was my hearing aid. As for my glasses, they were made in China. This is, quite frankly, incredible. 
but it's not a utopia or an idyllic paradise. Globalization has been a good thing insofar as it has enabled people to be more interconnected than ever. However, interconnectedness does not mean the same as fairness or even goodness. The uncomfortable truth about my clothes is that they were likely made in a factory by someone working long days for very little pay. This is great for businesses which can open factories in poorer parts of the world to be made cheaply in order to make a larger profit when they sell them in richer countries, such as our own. This can be good for us because it means that our food and clothing cost less, letting us stretch our paychecks further to get the things we need. But it can also be bad for us in different ways. It can impact jobs, particularly industrial jobs. You don't need me, fresh to the northeast from London, to explain the impact that the closure of the many mines here has had. This is a relatively complex situation, but at the end of the day there has been a major decline of the coal industry here in the northeast, even while China's coal industry grew to the best that it has ever been in 2014. The mines are not the only industry affected by global competition by any means. Arguably, the changes to the fishing industry have also been, as a result, impacted by globalisation. These are helpful examples that in a global market, resources are bought at the most competitive prices available, wherever that may be. To do otherwise would be poor business sense. But there's another impact globalisation has had. It's changed the way that we think about power and influence. Instead of the old empire-building nations using armies to expand their power, we now live in a political, diplomatic and legal world. It is through conversations, negotiations, agreements and complicated deals that the systems of financial and political power now work. Again, this is not necessarily a bad thing. It's simply the reality in which we live. The question is... How should we engage with that reality? There are those who want to use this reality to make the best deals that they can, to make the most money that they can. This starts with lobbying governments to make laws which are good for their businesses, which in turn sometimes means making it harder for others. There are governments who try to get the best deals for themselves with other governments. Think the United Nations or the European Union. Recently, there have been different trade deals such as TTIP and TPP, negotiated by lawyers representing banks and businesses, which want to help standardise regulations for things such as healthcare, food and labour laws and so on across different countries. This may well seem like practical business sense, but it would in effect be a deal made by and for the banks and businesses which could actually limit the ability of governments to regulate and tax them in the ways that they currently can do. Some have suggested that this would actually enable corporations to sue governments to change laws that infringe on their ability to make a profit. Most of us aren't directly involved in these conversations, but we can make our voices heard, both through using the internet and social media, or, more importantly, by voting in local and general elections and in referendums. By voting, 
we influence both who is in power in this country and the kinds of ideas and approaches that they will take. We no longer live in a world that uses armies of soldiers, but armies of lawyers, who represent a new kind of power which can seem to reduce human life to economic value and profit margins. The situation may be different, but we can identify with Habakkuk's lament of the unfairness of how Babylon was treating the Israelites. We can understand the desire for God to step in and fix things. But God says to him, Look at all the nations. I am doing a work in your days which you would not believe if you were told about it. Globalization has led to an interconnected world where cultures, people, and ideas, and trade are more interconnected than ever. This has led to good things for us, and it has led to difficulties for us. But there's another story going on as well. Through the interconnectedness of people and nations, more people than ever have the opportunity to hear and encounter the gospel message that God loves us and sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to reach out to us. He died for us upon the cross so that we may be forgiven of all our sins, and he rose from the dead to eternal life as a living promise of his love for us, which lives in us and our lives by the presence of his Holy Spirit. This is important because the gospel is not just for Christians. It is for the whole world. It is for the blonde girl that lives in Stockholm. It is for the teenagers in Detroit. It is for the family in Beijing and the old couple living in the foothills of the Himalayas. And it is for us, here in the northeast, here in Hartlepool at Stranton and Burbank. In our gospel reading today, Jesus says, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Elsewhere, Jesus talks more about being light. He describes himself as being the light of the world. But more than this, he says to his disciples, and so to us as well, that we are the light of the world too. We may feel like we are just one small church in one small corner of the northeast of a small country in a huge wide world, but in this era of globalization and interconnectedness, when we share our faith in Jesus here in Hartlepool, there are no limits on where that message could end up, who that message could reach. When we look at the unfairness and hardships that come with the reality we live in, we should take comfort that Jesus has come to the world, not to judge it, but to save it. But this doesn't mean that he simply accepts it, or is pleased to leave it as it is. Our God is in the business of transformation, of changing things for the better. It may not always feel like it, but God's Holy Spirit rests on communities such as ours here in Burbank. He sees our prayers and our worship as a light which flickers in the darkness. As we enter Advent and we wait for Christmas, we should watch and see what God will do here in this place, because his plan is, as it says in Habakkuk, that the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, just as the waters cover the sea. I was standing on the wall, 
by the ocean last week and was struck by the sheer enormity of the world. Next time I see the sea, I'll be reminded, and I hope you will be too, that this globalised society of ours belongs to God, and that someday the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, just as the waters fill the seas. Amen. <laughs>